Well, good morning. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. For those of you that were here last week, you'll notice this is a second part to the same text that we began with last week. But we're going to go a little further today, and we're going to include some cross-references to try to help us really apply this text to our lives I'm not going to be back in 2 Corinthians for some weeks due to the holiday season. And so we'll want to really try to, to put down roots in application of this, what I believe to be very weighty and important text. So please look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And we're going to read down through part of chapter 7. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Real quick, a yoke is a wooden beam normally used between a pair of oxen or other animals to enable them to pull together when working in pairs or more, as oxen usually do. So yokes are fitted for specific animals. It's an agricultural metaphor for our formal acts of service together. I preached on that last week. We talked about that. So again, here's 614. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, meaning someone that has not professed faith in Christ, has not professed Him as the Lord of the life, followed them, in baptism, began, followed him in baptism, began to be a part of the them that is the church. And so it says here, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So talking about formal partnerships, particularly last week we talked about membership and marriage, but we're going to talk more individually and morally this week. So don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now I'm going to read straightway without explanation. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God, the temple of God, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their people, and they shall be my, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons, it shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, and this is what I really want you to hang on to this week, these next words between the commas, between beloved and bringing. See these words right here. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. I want you to really red line that, underline that, zero in on that, because I'm going to go a lot of places this morning, and that's what I'm bringing it back to, is that phrase right there, in God's, in God's grace, I'll be attempting to do that. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Make room in your hearts for us. He says, make room in our hearts. We haven't wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. The validity to his gospel message. Now, look down at chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Paul wants to comment on his previous writings to them and how he had grieved them as he was calling them to become aware of their sin. And here's what it says in verse 8 and following. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Have you noticed that before? That the Bible articulates that grief is common to every person, but that some people grieve with a worldly grief that leads to death, and some people grieve with a godly grief that leads to salvation. You see? See the difference there? He forms that dichotomy, and he says he sees what earnestness this godly grief has produced in them. So there's an earnestness, there's an intentionality, an urgency about spiritual things because of the fact that they didn't have a, a worldly grief, but a godly grief. And so there's a gospel call in this message this morning as well for those of you that have only to this point experienced worldly grief. As you experience godly grief, that drives you to your very first repentance of sin and surrender to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to lead out this morning with offering that to you as God's free gift of salvation to you in Christ alone. Because this is going to be a message that's largely about what it means for the people of God to live as the people of God. Bringing holiness to completion or to zero in, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So I wanted to lead out with that because we're talking about something that is very important to the external, but is very focused on the internal, the church, what it looks like to be a church of believers and to be living in light of what God has already accomplished in Christ and will be faithful to bring to completion. One of my favorite verses is found in the book of the Philippians where the Apostle Paul writes and says that he who began a good work in you, in you, will be faithful to bring it to completion. you believe that? The one that began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of our Lord. So what kinds of means is God using to bring about that completion of holiness, in, that good work in us? For God is holy, light hath no fellowship with darkness. What means is he using? And what does it mean for us to embrace those means as his people and move along the pathway of the Lord into his sanctification that he has for us. Now, Paul includes himself as a member of the family of God within his exhortation to cleanse themselves. He doesn't say, you guys cleanse yourselves. I'm all by myself, all fine. He's including himself as a member of the family of God, and he's, he is talking to them in a manner that is collegial at this point in chapter 7, verse 1. He's saying, let's cleanse ourselves from any defilement of body and spirit. And so the work of God cannot exclude our action, as Mark Seifried says. It can't exclude our action. The work of God defines your action for you. We, we can't take on the burden of our own salvation, but let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit becomes part of God completing his work in us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so part of being cleansed and seeking to cleanse ourselves from defilement is basically an awareness of where we're unclean. How are we unclean? And so this morning, it is my sincere hope that by looking at a few passages of Scripture and tying it back to 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, I hope that we will see God's covenant and His calling of His people and how that helps us as his people to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. So key words is God's covenant and his calling of his people. And how that leads us in good faith to cleanse ourselves from every 
entanglement, every lack of cleanliness as God is guiding his people along in that. I pray this morning that you would sense the sins of this day, not the sins of some other day. And I pray that you would sense any unacknowledged sin in your own life, that you might then be able to repent of it. We can't repent of a sin that we won't even acknowledge. We must acknowledge sin. And I pray this morning that you would would see that that collective awareness of unclean from clean is part of what God is doing in making us what we're going to be. He's bringing into fruition the fullness of our salvation. And I want you to be persuaded this morning by the awakening of the Spirit that indwells every believer of that which is unclean versus that which is clean. So that's, that's a lofty batch of aims uh, to really talk about the main verse, which is chapter 7, verse 1, and God's covenant and His calling and how that guides us to a sense of pursuit of cleanliness. What I want to do to try to articulate this this morning is I want to look at some cross-references in the Bible. You may turn there. We may wind up with them on the screen. You may maybe want to write them down. might be the best way to go about it so that you can track with this after the sermon. The first place I want to go is with regard to God's covenant is all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 11. Deuteronomy 7, 2 through 11. Now, this is what this passage says about covenant and about being in covenant with God, about being yoked with God. It says, you shall make no covenant. This is Deuteronomy 7, 2. I'll read through verse 11. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. God would get angry with them, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Just a quick pause after verse 5. God commanded them to do something they wouldn't do. That is utterly destroy their enemies. And I'm, not, I'm assuming God's not surprised by that. Instead of destroying them, they tried to amalgamate their ways of life as their own. And without the gospel, without the internal work of the Spirit, without obedience to the Lord, without agreement with God, amalgamation meant death to the way of life that God has for His people. And so again and again, Israel teaches us this lesson that to intermingle with regard to formal covenant with worldly ways will cause us to become worldly in our ways. Our formal covenants... I'm not talking about interacting in the world. You'd have to leave the world not to interact in the world. But our most formal covenants and our most formal entanglements, not simply membership and marriage, but our own interactions with people, our most formalized and consistent interactions need to take into account what God is doing with us and that we might be, first of all, pure and undefiled, and then secondly, helping the world to hear the message of the gospel. Those are not antithetical pursuits. Verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God, holy. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, 
that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you. You're the fewest of all people, peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. It's because the Lord loves you. And because the Lord is keeping the oath, or his promises, you might say, that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, he keeps covenant, he doesn't break it, he keeps his promises, he keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Not a short-term God, is it? Verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living God, isn't it? He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So keep God's covenant, commandments in the new covenant too. Now how can he speak of this, this in a way that becomes relevant and understandable uh, for our lives. Well, let's track just a little bit through the Old Testament. I'm not going to have you turn to these passages, nor am I going to have them put on the screen, but that was Deuteronomy. Listen to Joshua 23, just a little bit further along. It says, If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord God is giving you. So we see this this danger built into the people, built this danger, this warning for the people of God built into the narrative of the Old Testament where Joshua is telling them in his twilight as he's finishing up his ministry, don't yoke with them. Don't covenant with them. It's not just about marriage in that day. It's about how marriage was identified with the religion of your people. You would take on the religion and the ethics and the way of life of the entire community that you married into. That's still to an extent true today. And certainly, I would advocate that you marry a believer if you're a person that's, I've already talked about that last week, that's looking to to get married at some point. But that's not what this is about today to us in terms of what we're trying to convey in the New Covenant. What we're saying is, is that the reason that that was so terrible is because it was widely understood that to marry into that community meant to take on and embrace the way of life of that community, which would be separate from, different from, antithetical to living in God's way under God's command. So this becomes a problem perennially with the Israelites. We see it in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one book in the Hebrew canon, the 22 books of the Hebrew canon. There's 39 books in your Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the the priestly figure Ezra and then the the reforming figure Nehemiah. And Ezra is just heartbroken over their intermarriage because of what it meant for them taking on the way of life of the non-believers. And so he says things like in Ezra 9, it says, The Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. And when I heard it, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. And it's a a, uh, repentant, a heartbroken, an awareness that that they've brought this iniquity on themselves by intermingling. Perhaps even taking on child sacrifice uh, that would have been common in the pagan practices during the time of Ezra, during the post-exile period. The idea of sacrificing babies in order to try to somehow gain favor from God. 
I wish we could say we didn't do that today, but unfortunately we do, and we must repent of it. Ezra was tearing out his beard, but Nehemiah was confronting them. It says uh, he did something a little more forceful. It says in Nehemiah 13, he cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. That is not how to win friends and influence people, is it? It says, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? It talks about how he, that he got entangled with, uh, in his polygamous lifestyle, his inadvisable lifestyle, got entangled with women from foreign cultures that brought their way of life into his way of life. And that mishmash weeds out the pursuit of that which is holy. So he warns them with that. Nehemiah a little more... Forcefully, And as I said last week, uh, obviously we marry, we marry only in the Lord. But I'm saying this week that beyond the scope of simply marriage, which is primary and covenantal, and simply membership in the church, which must be guarded for sure for only believers, I'm talking about your own personal lives in the way that you invest your time today. For this text means nothing if it isn't moral. It's moral. It's about character. The New Covenant talks of things this way. I'm going to just point out another writing of the Apostle Paul. He spoke of this concept in Ephesians 5, 1 to 13. He said, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says this, but... Sexual immorality and all impurity or uncleanliness, catharsis, the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. All impurity, uncleanliness, covetousness must not even be named among you. This, this, this idolatry can't even be named among you. Sexual immorality, impurity, not named among, among you. Idolatrous covetousness, not named among you. Because that's not proper among the saints. Ephesians 5, 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, unclean, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of this, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't partner with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in its good and right and true, right? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So there's this, there's this separation that occurs in our most formal and time-consuming partnerships, our endeavors that, that helps us to be in pursuit of bringing holiness in, into completion. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So it's such a blessing to become aware of that which is unclean. It's God's grace for us to see in bright terms what is good for us and what is not good for us, what is clean and what is unclean, morally speaking. So to, to be very clear, to restate Ephesians 5 with an economy of words, no sexual immorality. Believer, no sexual immorality. No fornication, no cohabitation, no relationships that are abominable to God, 
but living sexually pure. That should define God's people. No crude joking. Crude jokings out of step with the gospel. No ingratitude. No covetous idolatry. I always have to have more, 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 different, different, different. I want what someone else has constantly. This time of the year is an exposure for that. You won't find your satisfaction in stuff. There is no pleasure that will cause you to be fulfilled. Only Christ fulfills you. Yes to sexual purity in marriage. Yes to clean speech. Yes to a thankful heart. Yes to being a content contributor rather than a covetous idolater. Because you are beloved children with a promised inheritance and God has already given his son up for you as a sacrifice, then therefore offer yourselves as a living sacrifice in these ways. Be pure, clean, thankful, contributing. Don't even partner, let alone take part in impure shows and thoughtless joking and thanklessly ever wanting more and more and more of what someone else has. See, again, these, these are not antithetical. That is God's calling and his covenant with his people and our our pursuit of cleanliness, our cleansing ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion, the fear of the Lord. These are not antithetical. And I just believe today we just need to pause and to just marinate and, and drill deep on the fact that these are not antithetical thoughts, that because God has made covenant and he won't break his promise and because he has called us into fellowship with himself, then therefore, this is what it means to see your salvation being brought to completion in the Lord. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The means of grace is, is us and our collective consciences being awakened to the uncleanliness among us. Where have we become like the culture instead of, of shining light on the wickedness of the culture and living as God's set-apart people? John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one Another, And so we must see in our fellowship light from darkness. Differently, our, our talk and our walk need to match up so that the watching world witnesses that matching up of our walk and of our talk. So God is called out to us and he has established covenant with us as his people. Uh, one metaphor that's used in 2 Corinthians 6 is the temple. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 3, where it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17. So God already sees you as holy because he that is in you is greater than he that is the prince of this world. And so we together are, and you individually are too, a dwelling place for God. A, we are his temple space, and we need to start thinking of ourselves that way and our collective self that way. The Spirit is rooting out the effects of a formerly enslaved heart, enslaved to sin. The Spirit is, even if it's been stunted in your Christian life, the Spirit is now rooting out sin and God's spirit dwelling in you is like wiggling elbows around the dinner table to make room for his holiness and pushing sin out. And, and I just say to you, be embracing of the spirit wiggling around and rooting out sin, bringing holiness to completion in your life. This is out of reverence to God. We are to, we are to 
seek to cleanse ourselves from all defilement, from every contaminant. And that means necessarily, if we're going to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, it means we must become increasingly aware of what is unclean, of the ways where subtly and slowly evil ways from the prince of the age that has sway over the blinded people in our midst out there, how their ways has been embraced slowly by us in here. For it is most loving to those out there for us to present a distinction. It's least loving for us to blend in when it comes to morality because our spirituality drives our morality. I'm not talking about just being weird for the sake of being weird. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about just being awkward for the sake of being awkward. I'm talking about being distinct, a set-apart people morally because our spirituality drives our morality. This is as old as Leviticus. Listen to Leviticus 26, verses 9 through 13. It, it, uh, th- th- and this, this is an important theme in 2 Corinthians 6. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will, and will be your God and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you should not be that you should not be Egyptian slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect so that you can yoke with Jesus whose yoke is easy and his burden is light this is the promise that is now fulfilled in Christ that was made to God's people in the days of the writings of the book of Leviticus Keep covenant with your God. The exodus is used biblically to describe our exodus from sin. The apostle Paul brings this into view in the new covenant community. We've been separated from the world as a witness to the world of who God is. So we we should not return to a yoke of slavery to sin. But that is the constant and perennial challenge, isn't it? To put off the yoke of slavery to sin and to legalism, and not to drift into lawlessness, but to stay in step with the gospel and to walk as a people who have a conscience collectively aware of clean from unclean and seeking to see ourselves clean, bringing holiness to completion, cleansing ourselves from every defilement. Christ has broken the bar of the yoke of sin just as much as God assuredly delivered Israel from Egypt in the 15th century B.C., So keep covenant. Walk erect. Christ's yoke is doable. His promises, his yoke, compared to that of the world, is easy and light. Bind yourself to Christ and his people with his yoke and pull together. Many hands make light work. Engage because of the promises of God. Listen, not not only to how the law articulates God having a people, and not only to how the Apostle Paul in the first century A.D. discusses the application of Leviticus for God's people. But listen to how John the Revelator, discussing future things, describes God's people. Listen afresh to the words of Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. It says, now listen, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to this language, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, no more mourning, crying, pain. The former things will have passed away. Notice the language he's picking up on there. Verse 5. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They're not worthless. They're not false. They're trustworthy and true. There's no deceit here. He says, he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the thirst I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment to the one who conquers will have this, her- this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So he's helping us to conquer as sons of his. But he forms this dichotomy with verse 8. There's this warning that's always there in Scripture. It's a warning that causes us to come back to the cross and to, to, to cling to the cross of Christ for our salvation. And it's a warning for the people that utterly reject Christ. It's a warning of what happens when God makes ever more distinct the distinction that we're trying to make by faith in this life, one person at a time. For on the day of the Lord, we will be separated from terror. And this is what verse 8 says. For the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And he's, he's picking up on something from Revelation chapter 18, just a couple of pages beforehand, where it says, After I saw another angel coming down from heaven, this is Revelation 18, 1 to 5, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Not a dwelling place for God, but a dwelling place for demons has Babylon. Babylon, the great conquerors, Ezra and Nehemiah coming after the Babylon conquest of God's people. She has a Dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Unclean, clean, unclean. Same word in 2 Corinthians 7 word. Has a haunt, has a, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Revelation 18.3 says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. All the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And I heard another voice from saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. God has remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18, 1-5. You see, Babylon was a place that conquered Israel and is a metaphor for the dwelling place of demons. Nations are drinking the wine of Babylon's passion, not Christ's passion. Nations are drinking the wine of sexual immorality, not of purity. Nations are drinking the wine of greed of the merchants of the earth. Luxury for this world, not for the world to come. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Go out from her. You'll share her pleasures and her plagues. God won't forget her iniquities. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. You cannot be yoked to such demonry and drunken revelry. We are the sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, those that fear God, that bring holiness to completion. We're those people we don't drink their wine. And I call you today to come out of her. We are not Babylon. Babylon has fallen. We are the redeemed of the Lord. Have a testimony. Not of sparse morality, but of biblical repentance. Don't yoke with demons. Yoke with Christ's people. Biblical repentance 
is not your salvation, but is a result of Christ's work in you. You repent because of your awareness of spiritual things. But repentance is a mark of God's people. We are repentant, refreshed people as we recognize sin in our lives and as we put it aside. And so what I'm saying this morning is to you, we'll get to the repentance sermon when we come back from Advent break. But, but for today, I want to kind of be in the prior to the repentance sermon. Not that I'm not calling you to repentance. Every mess, gospel message is a call to repent. But that I want to say to you that I'm afraid we have blind spots, that we're, we're just not aware of where uncleanliness has passed off as just okay for God's people. He has made covenant with us. He has called us. And so we are to collectively and individually, we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And that is a labor of love. It is a yoked pulling agricultural metaphor. It is a labor where we pull together to make war against sin. And nobody picks up on this lingo better than the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear these words of the Lord through God's servant, Peter. Listen to what he says here. This will be my last cross-reference, but it's an important one. Peter speaks of the distinction between God's separate people and those destined for unbelief, those vessels of wrath, contra the vessels of mercy, which are us as people. And he writes to us this admonition in light of that distinction. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 2, 8 through 11. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined to disobey the word. They stumble. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. All those priestly promises now piled onto you. A holy nation. The nation promises piled onto you. A people for God's own possession, for him to own. He bought you at a price. A people that, that what? That what, what are you as a chosen race? Not disobedient to the word as they were destined to do. You're obedient to the word, aren't you? As a royal priesthood, when you're confronted with the clear teaching of God's scripture, you're to be obedient, right? To the word for your joy and for your witness in the watching world. But it's for your joy because the father knows better than you do what's good for you, doesn't he? All the, 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 the pride, the, the egos that must be crucified for us to follow the crucified one that rose again. This is to obey the word. As they were destined to disobey the word, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You are proclaimers of the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you realize, priests, what you have? This calling that you have because of this covenant, God has made you as people. You are proclaimers of his excellencies. Do you see his excellencies today? You never know when you might be entertaining angels unawares. Hebrews 13, 2 says, do you see his excellencies? Christ is more excellent than these possessions. Do you see his beauty? You're the proclaimers of his excellencies. And in proclaiming his excellency, I promise you this. Because God promises it. If you lift his name high, he will draw men unto himself. You proclaim his excellencies, we'll see men drawn to Christ. You proclaim his excellencies, we'll see men drawn to Christ. On the authority of the gospel of John, you proclaim his excellencies in word and in deed, we'll see men drawn to Christ.
Christ. Peter puts it so well. He says in verses 10 and 11, once you were not a people, once you weren't a people, you were isolated, you were lonely, you didn't have community, you were not a people. You were scattered, but now you are God's people. You didn't have mercy once before, but now you converted people. You've received it. What do you have that you've not received? Now you've received mercy. Those excellencies to be proclaimed, aren't they? Now you have, you weren't a people. Now you're a people. You had no mercy. Now you have mercy, beloved. I urge you, as, as, as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers and aliens, to abstain. I'm going to urge you. Same as Paul is urging you. Peter urges the redeemed Lord, abstain from the passage, passions of the flesh. Obviously, we've listed them already. Impurities. Abstain from uncleanliness. Cleanse yourselves from the defilement. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war. They are at war against your soul. The passions of the flesh are at war against your soul. Peter says, Every one of you who hopes in Christ seeks purity, practices righteousness, not sinfulness. Because we've seen him by faith and we know him. And so we hope in him. And that, that hope is the engine of our pursuit of purity. Perfectly not yet, but our pursuit, yes. We're to be marked as a people that are pursuing cleanliness. Not to become God's people, but because we are God's people. You're not pursuing cleanliness to become God's people. You're pursuing it because that's what you are. You're God's. We're his people. And he disciplines those that he loves. So sometimes discipline hurts for a moment. But it's godly grief. It's not worldly grief. And God's word may feel hard at times. But his word is for your good. It's for your joy. And it is the best way to show a witness to the world that has not received these mercies, that cannot proclaim these excellencies because they have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Your witness is connected to your cleanliness. Let us cleanse ourselves from every single defilement. So important. So important, resent not the discipline of the Lord. Become awake this morning, awake to the uncleanliness, the, the unacknowledged sin in your life, the besetting sin. Since you have these promises, beloved, cleanse yourselves from every defilement. It means you have to list them in the fear of the Lord and hasten the completion of holiness in our lives. I love the way Scott Haithman says it in his commentary on the subject in Corinthians. He says, from Paul's perspective, the promises in view in this passage, that's 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, they've already begun to be fulfilled in the lives of God's people. Even though they're not yet finished, they've begun to be fulfilled. He who began a good work and you'll be faithful to complete it. And so then he says this, he says, then we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement. If you're an English person, cleanse ourselves in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is in the subjunctive. We should cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Again, he says, these promises in the passage that are collated in 2 Corinthians 6, 
they've already begun to be fulfilled in the lives of God's people, of us, of us, of his people, of his church. Even though they are not yet finished, so we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement because of the promises God has granted us. Because of the promises God has granted us. Martin Luther says, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing him. We must proclaim that point in which the devil is attacking. And friends, if we were to get really honest about it, it's sexual immorality. I mean, it's just we have blended with the culture entirely too much when it comes to sexual immorality. I mean, if Martin Luther were standing here today, I can't help but believe that if he were to offer that quote, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing him. This is the man who wrote the book after the book on justification by grace alone through faith alone. And he says, you're not clearly confessing Christ if you avoid the point in which the devil is at the moment attacking. Friends, if you want to see people one to Christ, if you want to see people one to Christ as his people, let's root out impurity. Let's stop being known as sexual sinners and let's be known as God's people that don't put economy ahead of faithfulness. I don't know what that means for you exactly, but I do think it is the besetting sin of the day. Perhaps uh, I wrote a few things down. Maybe it is um, it's what you, you look at on screens that needs to change. It, it affects things. It affects things. Perhaps it needs to change. Perhaps it's how you look at other people as objects instead of as children of God to be loved, to be cared for. Per- perhaps it's the way that you view your spouse not as a gift from God, like the Proverbs says, and all of Scripture testifies to, but as an object to fulfill your needs and give you what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Uncleanliness, indicated by covetous idolatry, always wanting more, 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 never being satisfied. Uncleanliness, our coarse talk, corruptive talk coming out of our mouths. Surely this won't hurt anyone. Surely that won't hurt anyone. Nobody sees this. Guess who sees it? You know who sees it? He sees it. When David, David, not, not a track record of being the most moral man for sure, right? And yet is called a man after God's own heart. Why? How does that jive? I think the only way that it makes sense is because when David was confronted with his sin, by persuasive and astute voices like Nathan, he would respond with, as the Psalter says in 51, against you alone have I sinned. It's not that he was discounting how he'd sinned against people. He had, he knew that, but he went straight to the top and he understood who saw every bit of it when he was sleepwalking through his spiritual life as if the uncleanly parts didn't matter, where he'd melded with the culture and become become utterly selfish in his speech and his actions, and he snapped out of it by God's grace, and he repented of his sin, but he had to become aware of it. Today is about becoming aware of it. 
Our own Skylar Turner posted on November the 30th, transformation begins not when your eyes are open to the evils of the world only, but when you realize that you are marked among them. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. Beloved, look for the sin in you. Ask the Lord to reveal it, not because you're not gods and not to become gods, but because you are gods and because it's for your joy and for your witness to the world. Don't squander these days as an unclean people. Let us together seek to be a local church, a community of new creatures that is seen by the watching world as distinct and different. I want them to know Jesus, and I want them to be able to see him by looking at our life together. It's such a special time we have in the life of our church. We have so many things, so many things that are going right. So many things that are beautiful and true and good. And I'm thankful for you. I, I godly am. I mean, you have, you've heard good theology and you've responded to God's covenant and his calling on your life. And what I'm asking for here is to just not settle for good enough. I'm asking you as God's people now, let's step into the orbit of the ethical application of that which we profess to believe. Let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion. That is something we do together, but it's something that you become aware of right now alone. Would you let the Spirit of God begin to open the eyes of your heart that you might see your sin, see your uncleanliness, and understand that you seeing that cleanliness is a huge step toward joy for us and witness for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us Help us not to be defeated by the wiles of the evil one, for there is no condemnation for those of us that are in you. But Lord, help us not to settle for a lack of joy and for a lack of effective witness. As we hasten your day, may we hasten the holiness that needs to be brought to completion within us and in our midst. As we put forth and discharge every conceivable effort known to us as people, as your people, based on your promises as we discharge every effort to be clean and to root out uncleanliness. Walk with us by your grace and help us to form these closest unions with these other believers and not those who oppose the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we meditate on these gospel things, I would invite our ushers to come to collect our communication cards and our tithes and offerings this morning.